we got an elder Q&A this morning. Um, so let me open in prayer, and then we can dive into some questions here. Let's pray. To gather once again on, on this Lord's Day. Father, what a gift to worship the living triune God. And Father, now even as we consider many questions, even coming off the back of uh, living as the church uh, Sunday school and various other questions, just pray, Father, that you would attend us by your spirit now, even open our eyes to behold the beauty of Christ and even his bride, the church. Uh, so build us up and edify us. I grant the elders wisdom now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is, had actually a good number of questions come in throughout the week, and what I want to do is try to, I want to try to highlight and get to the questions that are more specifically referring to the Sunday school that was just uh, finished in the sanctuary here, living as a church. So th there's going to be probably maybe four, five, six questions that are more specifically regarding that class. And after that, we're going to dive into, there's, there's, there's sort of a whole range of questions. Um, so let's start with this one. Um, and this one isn't necessarily explicitly about living as a church, but it, it can have a bearing on it, to be sure. So the first question is, are multi-site churches biblical? Are multi-site churches biblical? Nobody wants to answer. I guess I'll answer. Um, <clears throat> so the, um, a multi, what is a multi-site church? Well, generally in modern parlance, it means a, there's a church that has multiple campuses they call them and very often that means they're beaming in uh, a live stream into those various buildings on these different campuses and then people gather at those campuses watch the screen maybe there's a campus pastor who looks after some of the care of people there um, and so the question is 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 it biblical well the question always is uh, there's differences of view on church government and the relationship of small groups, Bible studies, as they relate to then um, uh, the governance of, of an elder board. Uh, generally speaking, I think, it's, I think there's a little bit of a gray area in terms of multi-site. I think, I think however, cause so then the term is, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Well, it, it's, is, it, is it right or is it wrong? I think, you know, in terms of what the scriptures teach. I, in the early church, it seems that there was one church per city it seemed at the start, you know, there was writing to the church at Ephesus or the church at Philippi. And so, so even that, we don't do that, do we? we we're, break, we're broken down into smaller congregations. However, generally speaking, I think the multi-site campus is less good uh, because you, normally there is not then a, a local pastor pastoring that church. And if you did, if you did have a local pastor pastoring that multi-site campus then the overall governance of the mother church would be more of like a presbyterian church government setup um, at the same time we have a church plant um, where out in cochran this morning uh, pastor josh carey who's the pastor of that church of uh, its, its own congregation uh, he is still part of actually our elder board until such time as he's able to have his own elders there and then have his own board so it's not the same as a multi-site, but there still is a connection in terms of the governance from Calvary Grace 
to that church. I think the biggest priority, though, is uh, what we say here is the word heard together. The idea that you would hear a living preacher preach the word of God in person and that that word is something that in that event, the people who are there hear it together, fellowship together, see each other together, bear one another's burdens together under that word heard together. So it's a little bit of a complex issue. And uh, yeah, I think it's, we can, we can love across differences on that one, I think. Yeah, that's helpful. So uh, concerning loving across differences, then this next question is very much sort of within that realm. How can we hold passionate personal convictions on, go- on non-gospel issues without imposing them on others? And second question, how do we extend grace to those who have chosen differently on these topics? So non-gospel issues. Well, um, we need wisdom. Um, I think that is, that is key. We need wisdom. Uh, we, need, uh, we need to throw grace, not grenades, at <laughs> one another. Um, and as other people have said, you know, in your differences, you, you toss love bombs across to your uh, opponent or the one that disagrees with you. I think that in your disagreements or your differences, when these uh, non-gospel issues, right? Yeah, non, non-primary issues. Your, your, um, your top note, let it, let it be joyful um, so that it doesn't descend into sort of a, a, an angry argument. Um, and if there is a, cor- a correction to be made, uh, that you do it with all gentleness, um, as we're commanded in the scriptures. Uh, you need to pick your hills to die on. Um, sometimes we, we pick the wrong hills, and that's why we need uh, prayerful wisdom in the way that we deal with one another on these issues. Um, sometimes Christians will come to a church and they want to major on hot-button issues. So what does this church believe on the latest hot-button issue of the day instead of what does this church believe on the issue of prayer, on how the gospel works out in all of life and integrity of church leadership and those things. And so I, th- I think the, the, the bottom line is maybe uh, test your, your passionometer. Are you more passionate about those tertiary issues or even secondary issues than you are about the primary issues. And if you are, then you've got to readjust that, readjust your grip. Just let it go a little bit more on those other issues. Still hold them, but hold them with a just a little a looser grip. And then I think you'll find that it falls into the right, um, uh, the right level uh, of meaning, and then you will engage at the right level with other people. That's good. Any other thoughts? Uh, next question, how is the Great Commission applied? Is it to individuals or the church? How then is that lived out? It's a Great Commission question. Well, we've, you know, we've got to look at, well, what is the Great Commission? So when you, when you turn your Bibles to the end of the Gospel of Matthew... When you're, in, when you're in Matthew 28, you see in the context there, it's a context of worship. So Jesus had, had he's directing these disciples, and they saw him and they worshipped him. Well, some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I think the question was, do we do that as individuals or as the church? Well, the answer is both. Because individually, we are all, as a Christian, you are to be sharing the gospel and with the aim of making disciples. That is, you're a follower of Jesus seeking to make other followers of Jesus. But as soon as we're talking about baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the, of the Holy Spirit, you're talking about something that happens within the structure and the context of the local church. Uh, it, just because you might share the gospel with somebody on the street, then you don't go baptizing them immediately, but rather you have them come and they become come into the scope of the church and then there's a structure there with elders and there's an evaluation and even that baptism is based on then a true profession of faith that needs to be analyzed it needs to be recognized as credible and the baptism has to be done within the context of a proper doctrinal confession in this case a very trinitarian one father son and holy spirit in the one name and so there has to be all that structure so I would say it's both, it's both and, and, and all of us ought to take that up, especially at this time of year. It's a good time to be reminded we should be sharing the gospel repeatedly. Of course, the work of the church is also to equip the saints, as Paul says to the Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So part of you come and gather here in order to be sent out. But then the hope is then people that are also drawn in and then they're discipled, they're evangelized, discipled, and if they're made disciples, then they are to be baptized as part of the church's function. I think some people sometimes think, uh, if I say, oh, the, the get confused with the mission of the church is to be campaigning for abortion, against abortion. And we would say, no, that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church would be, part of the teaching would be to teach on the sanctity of life. But then as individuals within the church, it might be that it's within your purview to campaign against abortion. But we keep the mission of the church corporate, as, as Clint's just outlined there. Uh, we had a, uh, when I first came to the church, Clint had us all read a book, What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. I think that still stands as a really good resource to read if you want to just sharpen up on what is the mission of the church. That's good. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, but still sort of within the realm of living as a church. Uh, question regarding church discipline. When your Christian friend who attends another church is in unrepentant sin, should you inform that other church about it? Yeah, I'll take a stab. Uh, Clint just says, have fun. Um, I'd recommend for those who weren't in the Sunday school class just a few weeks ago on church discipline, that, that's just, I think, a really helpful overview of um, church discipline uh, at a high level, and then, of course, the application of that can be very, um, very interesting dynamics. Oftentimes, that's a sort of a question you'd want to have over coffee in, in a living room to talk about the dynamics of that. But if the question is, you have a friend who is in unrepentant sin, who belongs to another church, I think I'm, I'm implying that, based on the question, we don't know if it's a, a member of the other church or just attends another church. And even that just taps into, I've got two A's, not just Canadian, but two A's to think about church discipline. 
is to assess the situation. There's, there's a lot that can be going on. And so, so to assess, like, what is the severity? What's the nature of the sin? Is this a high-handed sin? For example, this, this, this person in unrepentant sin, is it high-handed, very obvious uh, disregard of, of the Lord and his law? Or is it perhaps just an evidence of immaturity? You know, are you proud? Does it seem like you're a proud person? Or does it seem like that, that person is... Uh, you know, sleeping with their boyfriend, living with their girlfriend. There's just a difference in that. So then you, you assess that, you assess the person. Is this person a believer, professing believer? Okay. Is this person a member of your church? Okay, you've covenanted together. There is actually an obligation and responsibility to speak to that person. That's the obligation and responsibility that we have. If they are outside of your church, well, you don't have the same obligation to that person that you would to someone in your church. Just like Hebrews 13 says that pastors will have to give an account, not for every Christian in the world, but for the believers under their care. So you're, you're assessing who they are. And then finally, just even the, the, assessing, the assessment of your own heart. Do you have a heart that's warmed by the gracious, forgiving, pardoning love of the Lord? Is that, is that warming your heart and you're, you're burdened for that person to also go to the Lord in the context of their sin? Or are you just a little cold and you're actually taking some sort of enjoyment, finding fault in others? And that, that could just, you know, even that just takes time to explore. So instead of quick buckshot conversations, well, actually, it's, it's wise to take some time to really understand the situation, to understand who they are, understand your motivations, to pray about it. And if you've actually gone through that exercise, then when you go to have that conversation with the person, and that's where it starts, you're going to have a much more profitable conversation than if you just go right to them. But the question is, do you take it to the church? And if you look at Matthew 18, that model, that's, there's a few steps along the way. So you see your friend in sin, do you automatically go to the church? Well, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I'd say that you talk to that person, and maybe if that's proving unfruitful, you, you talk to them again with one or two other friends, ideally people who are part of their church. You're, you're bringing them into it. And as you're having conversations with them, maybe if it's, if it, if it's not proving fruitful, you alert them. Th there's no surprises. There's no ambush, no ambush conversations. But then you say, do you think the people in your church would want to help you with this? Do you think your, your pastor might, might love to shepherd you through this? I wonder if we should let him know. And then you're, you're sort of indicating to this person that that's where this is going. And uh, some people might disagree, but I see it as if that person is a member of the church and if there's in some way something in their life that their church is unaware of, well, maybe it would be brotherly love to make them uh, aware of that. And as one friend once told me, depending on what the, what the sin issue is, if, if you see it in their life, chances are other people see it too. Uh, so as you get other people involved, it actually might be a very, very fruitful group conversation where the Lord does a lot of good work. So that might be a sort of a long-winded take at it. That's helpful. I th so I think this next question very much I think 
I think our brother Jared here just sort of answered it. I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. How should we approach gospel partners who have neglected to attend church for some time? So I think the principles that, that Pastor Jared just laid out are very much apply to this um, question as well. I, I would say, um, just in regards to both these questions, if, if I was to, to sort of generalize, I would say in our society, we, we live in, an, in a society where, generally speaking, we're fairly easily offended, um, and we sort of don't have the thickest skin, I would say. So what I'm trying to get at is, generally speaking, if a brother or sister uh, is, is coming to the conviction that they want to approach another brother or sister about what they perceive to be sin in their lives, if a person is actually willing to go that far, generally speaking, that person... I would say you want to try to listen to them because they're, 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 they're pushing against the spirit of the age which says, no, 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 just don't even go there. We don't want to, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. Um, it's sort of similar to sharing the gospel, right? People can say, well, it, it might not be loving in certain circumstances to share the, share the truths of the gospel. Well, if, if you're actually... Um, drumming up the courage to actually share the gospel with someone that you're, you, you really uh, are burdened to share the gospel with, that is very loving in and of itself. I think the same principle applies to, um, to approaching a brother or sister who, who is living in sin. So just some things to consider there. Yeah, I, I just thought of something there, just because the thing is important with, you know, uh, correcting, correcting each other should be done with a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6. Um, and also, I think with prudence, so, so, the, so the, you know the, the issue at hand, you, you know the end goal that you want, but prudence is the way that it gets there, if you know what I mean. So, so that Solomon, okay, he knew the biblical principle that, you know, when the two prostitutes come to him with, with the baby, he knew the biblical principle that a baby belongs with the mother, right? And he has to discern that. Prudence says, bring me a sword, I'll cut it in half, and I draw out who the real mother is. That's the prudence that, 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 that activated, gave legs, gave practical um, action to Solomon's wisdom. So that we need that sort of prudence with each other as we correct one another, is we know the end we want, now, what's the prudent way to get there with this particular person? And as Jared outlined, asking a few questions, knowing a bit of background, those kind of things. Sometimes you, it needs to be a wrench out of the fire, a quick one, because you do, don't have time. But other times, that wise and prudent approach will, will be effective. That's good. Yeah. Uh, one last question that's, that's, that's very much sort of within the realm of, of living as a church. Uh, there's a couple other ones that are touching on it as well that we'll get to, but... Is there a place for X ethnicity? So for example, Chinese, Korean, Spanish, etc. church. When those churches are run in the English language, would that be putting common affinities over gospel unity? Yeah, so, so if you, you have a, I, th I think you have distinctions based on language groups. So if you've got a Spanish speaking church, then it's going to have people that are Spanish-speaking or Ukrainian-speaking church or, or whatever the language may be, French-speaking church. However, you, you can't be barring 
people from coming hearing the gospel. And even to the extent, and it's something that we're thinking about here, if you've got people that are struggling with English, and this is an English language service, well, is there a way that we can provide some type of translation for them so that they can come? It's not then with the intention of excluding people <coughs> based on a certain uh, language. Now, once you have, uh, for example, historically black churches or Chinese churches or these kinds of things uh, that, are, that are in English, however, um, they can get quite exclusive. They can essentially then be so-called ethnic churches. And there's views that people have that, oh, well, we're, we're just, you know, this is a black church or this is a Chinese church. But I think today if we were to say, well, this is, this is actually uh, a Caucasian English church or a, uh, this is a, a British church or this is a, a Swedish church, uh, I think people would be quite offended by that, and it doesn't really fit with the New Testament in terms of um, making disciples of all nations, as we just pointed out in Matthew 28. Now, when you've got different language groups, I'd say that's where, that's where you can see some of these distinctions. But as soon as you're using, for example, English, which is the common language globally, if you're using that, then there should be a, an appropriate openness to people of different ethnicities in that congregation. At the same time, every church, depending if you're using the English language, but depending on who the leadership is, it is going to take on many of the cultural traits of, of that leadership and the denominational history that those churches have. So it's appropriate, <coughs> excuse me, it's appropriate that we sing the hymns of Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and John Newton, because that is then the English tradition of, of our faith. Now, if we were in Russia and we were singing, uh, we're in a Russian Baptist church, well then, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if there's any Russian hymn writers, but it'd be okay for them to sing those Russian hymns. You know, it'd be appropriate that way. So that's maybe the distinction, is just that English language. So. Yeah, that's helpful. Any other thoughts? Did you have a thought, Paul? No? All right. Um, next question. What is the greatest threat to the gospel for our children, and does that come from outside or inside the home? And then sort of a bit of a follow-up question. What does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? So first question, what is the greatest threat to the gospel for our children, and does, does that come from outside or inside the home? Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. The greatest threat to the gospel is neither outside the home or inside the home. The greatest threat to the gospel is inside the human heart. Yeah. That is where the problem lies. And Jesus really speaks to this issue in Mark chapter 7. And he says, you can turn in your Bibles there if you'd like, Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 14. And even we can just jump down, actually, to verse 20 for the sake of brevity. Jesus said, and he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what we have from Jesus' teaching is that the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And the second, the second part of the question, uh, namely, what does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? Well, to be in the world is to live according to the world system. And certainly we live in the world, but we are not of that system. We are under the rule of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we're told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, uh, to, to not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then John goes on to describe what is in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we're reminded here uh, that essentially greater is he that is in you than he who is of the world. So we don't have to be afraid, so to speak, of, of the intrusion, but we do need to be aware of the intrusion of the world because there is a system there is a power of darkness that we need to be aware of and we need to protect our families from. But having said that, we recognize that what truly defiles is not what is coming down the pipe so much as what's coming out of the heart. That's good. Yeah, if, if, if I could just tack a little something on it. This question does remind me of... Uh, a post, I remember uh, Tim Challey's Christian blogger from a few years ago. I think I've mentioned this before, maybe in, this Q in a Q&A, but it, it, I thought it was just very helpful. He said, fundamentalists, when you look at sort of different denominations, fundamentalists very much will emphasize your greatest enemy or threat is the world. Charismatics will say it's the devil, and reform folks will say it's the flesh. And as Pastor Jeff just unpacked, I think we would have to say that fundamentally, th the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So if you, look at the, if you look at the world and the devil, they prey upon the flesh. So in other words, if, if your heart was not corrupt and, and prone to wander, prone to sin, the devil in the world would have no, th 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 there would be no um, sort of punch in their threats at all. So fundamentally, it starts with the human heart. Um, and of course, while still recognizing that the world, the flesh, and the devil, we, we, we wage, uh, we battle against all three. God, uh, so the, uh, you nailed it, uh, Jeff and Rob, but uh, at the same time then, we're talking about the threat to the children, right, in the home, is that what yes. it is? Yeah, but God uses means, so he structures the family, and he structures parents over the children, so that there is teach your children these things, Deuteronomy 6 and then Ephesians 6 to uh, fathers to take that lead in instruction and discipline of children. So ultimately, you're not going to convert that heart, but God uses means to do it. So a threat to the gospel is unbiblical parenting in, in the home. I mean, 
you know, a, a threat to my wife and, and my children is me and my own sin if I'm not uh, performing as a biblical husband and, and father, obviously, when my children were within, within my home. So it's not ultimate, but there's a means there that God puts in place for the conversion of, of children within the Christian home, ultimately resting on his sovereign choice at the same time that is a structure that's in place and something that needs to, uh, I think, uh, we need to continue to grow in the understanding of the structure in the home. Yeah, that's good. All right, here is a non-softball question. Uh, what are Christians to think about the conflict happening in Israel? And this person actually uh, just shared a bit of a comment as well. Uh, as a Christian, I see that both sides are suffering, that is, Jews and Palestinians, and I see two people groups who desperately need to seek the Lord. But the question is, is what are Christians to think about the conflict happening in Israel? Okay, so is the mic on? Are you recording this? Because if I get in trouble, I'll know uh, where the source came from. Okay, turn your Bibles. We're going to look at very quickly three very quick little passages for thinking about Israel, and then in turn thinking about Israel helps you to think about this conflict. So Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, it's going to be really easy. It's the first few verses of Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. Very, very easy to find. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, speaking of, of ethnic Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And goes on to talk about the promise. So this then clarifies there are uh, both, both Muslims and Jews claim to be the children of Abraham, the Abrahamic religions, okay? But what this clarifies is that there's a problem. If you're not in Christ, you know, then you're not a child of promise. And, and Paul is concerned then for these ethnic Jews. He says that he, he's, he would wish that he was cut off from Christ in order that they would be saved but it means that he is saved and they are not. Go over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It's a very burden for fellow Jews. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Definitely, you see that in many, in many amongst many Jews in Israel, although many Israelis are, uh, are absolutely secular, they're atheists. But for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. 
So anybody who is thinking that Jews who do not believe in Jesus are on the right path are wrong. They are not submitting to God's righteousness. And then it says very clearly, most, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. For Christ, Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that's why we aren't meeting on Saturday. That's why we're, you had bacon this morning for breakfast. That's why I almost got an amen out of that. Um, so, so then this clarifies then how we are to think about Israel. Now last one, go over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, just again, first few verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, so that's the question. Because this, this bears on the question that was asked, you know, does, does Israel, this modern nation state, does it have a special, uh, a special um, blessing upon it from God? I ask then, has God rejected his people? Paul says, by no means, for I myself... That's Paul. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on then to give these different illustrations. He says, verse 5, so too at the present time, uh, verse 5, so too there is at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basic basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you see that Paul sees the literal fulfillment of the promises to ethnic Jews being fulfilled, and he cites himself as Exhibit A. Not because he's simply an ethnic Jew, but because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. So that is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel, is that they are fulfilled by those ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. So, yes, both the Jews and the Palestinians need to believe in the gospel. If, if they are not Christians, they're all going to hell. However, right now, there, there are Palestinian Christians in, the, in Israel. There have been some Palestinian Christians in, in, in Gaza. Uh, there are, I've heard about a pastor uh, talking about uh, a guy who, a pastor, U.S. pastor was at a church in Israel, and they were praying for... Their kids from that church who were, had enlisted in the Israeli forces. They're Christian believers in those Israeli forces. It's a modern nation state. So we can, we can support, I, like my view is, I think we support Israel as a nation state. They're a Canadian ally. They're a democracy. Uh, it's a flawed state. It's not perfect. I don't necessarily agree with lots of their policies, but I think we support them. Uh, Hamas is a, essentially a wicked, evil, uh, criminal organization, uh, uh, similar to supporting the mafia or some, some type of a gang. The fact that they have been supported by people in that region is to their shame. So I think that based on the, her the horrific things that have been done by, by Hamas in Israel, that has justified what, what, what the Israeli state is doing. However, there is no sense, I think, that Israel somehow blessed with this special blessing, biblically speaking, on them, or that, or that Palestinian Christians would somehow be second-class Christians because they're Palestinian. 
So we have to clarify the difference between our geopolitical views and then who's going to heaven. And so I think then we can support, personally, I would support the state of Israel, even though I don't, just like I support Canada, the federal government, but I don't like lots of what goes on in the federal government. But, I, but I'm a Canadian citizen. If I didn't like it, I'd have to move, right? But I'm, I'm signed on here. And so I support Israel as a state, but we cannot let ourselves get into this bad theology of thinking then there's a special blessing on Israel when the Bible is very clear that they are not submitting to God's righteousness. And, and if you're a Christian in Israel today, often there's actually quite a bit of persecution against you if you actually believe the gospel. And that's why we have Clint on the panel to answer those difficult questions. <laughs> um, I just, uh, I won't add to that because that was comprehensive, but um, just thinking about the, this whole situation, just thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 about the signs of the end of the age, and he said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. So how do you think about it? Well, don't be alarmed, right? Uh, but the end is not yet. For nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdoms and he said these are the beginnings of birth pains so we're in the these are just the signs of the end of the age these are the these are the birth pains and then he talks about persecution coming for christians standing up for the for the name of christ that many will fall away uh that uh, there'll be false prophets that there'll be lawlessness that love will grow cold but he says this at the end but the one who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so we're not to be alarmed. Uh, this should just stir us on then to endure to the end, to persevere, and to proclaim the gospel, to, to be on mission, to evangelize. So, so don't be alarmed. Persevere and proclaim the gospel. It should stir us on towards that. If you are someone who's maybe newer to the church, or even if you've been here a long time, but you've got questions about the end times and things like that, I just encourage you to reach out to me or one of the elders to talk about that, because a lot of people, they've left that to the side. They haven't thought through those things, and they get very confused by these issues, and yet uh, the Bible can be uh, very clear on some things that you need to be clear on, even as... Uh, other other issues about end times you can be quite open-handed about so I just encourage anybody with questions about that to seek us out and uh, we can we can recommend resources for you that's good so I think we've probably got time for one more question here uh, I've sort of there's a couple of very similar questions I've, I've sort of um, sort of squished into one question and maybe uh, I'm gonna open with with this and, and maybe we'll get a rapid fire from the whole panel here very quickly if if you thought of it um so the question is, is i'm new to the church what is reformed theology and what is the difference between protestants and roman catholics now the rapid fire i want to do quickly first before we answer that is any introductory books you recommend if you don't have one that's fine but let's start with you jared i'll go for the the simple but profound the book of romans read it slowly, maybe get a commentary, a uh, good study Bible, and read of God's sovereign grace.
Yeah, too many. Um, I, I think uh, Michael Reeves' uh, book, what is, is The Unquenchable Flame. Yeah, The Unquenchable f Flame, so that was yep. maybe, uh, might be the easiest introduction uh, that, that introduces you to, to those issues. Uh, the other is on, on Roman Catholicism in particular. There's a blog by a pastor in Rome, mm. uh, Leonardo Di, Di Chirico, not Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's, <laughs> he planted a Reformed Baptist church right beside the Vatican, and he has a blog called The Vatican Files. You can look it up, and if you have Roman Catholic friends or family, highly recommended in short doses to understand what Roman Catholicism really teaches and how it relates to true Protestant evangelical theology. I've been quiet, but I've been preparing any of these questions, and I'm just going to pass it on because I, I agree with some of those thoughts. For myself, The Genius of Puritanism by a guy named Peter Lewis, I believe. Clint gave me that book when I was in my early 20s, hmm. and so anything by the Puritans is going to be really helpful in terms of Reformed theology as, as a system of of big God theology. That's what you got to think of when you think of Reformed theology. It's big God theology versus um, perhaps the alternative might be called a more man-centered theology, and many of us came out of that more man-centered theology. Uh, the other book uh, that I would recommend would be by Joel Beakey, and it's called Puritan uh, Reformed Spirituality, which is really helpful because it's not just about your head and gaining information. It's about uh, a type of piety that's associated with the Reformed tradition that really gets at the heart. And so that Beaky book would be helpful too. We've got plenty of books there. I'll give you a, uh, a video lesson uh, on, you'll get it on the Ligonier website by R.C. Sproul, uh, What is Reformed Theology? About 20 minutes. Sproul's one of the best exponents of that, or has been. That's good. Yeah, I was just going to mention The Unquenchable Flame as well. So the subtitle is Discovering the Heart of the Reformation. Again, my, by Michael Reeves. I think it's about 100, 120 pages. Excellent resource. Uh, in regards to uh, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, again, R.C. Sproul, he's got a little book again, probably 100, 120 pages, called Are We Together? Are We Together? A Protestant Analyzes Roman Catholicism. And it's a very helpful resource. Um, We've got a couple minutes left here, brothers. I might just take a quick stab at this question. What, what is Reformed theology? What is the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics? Um, so I would say one of, the, one of the really helpful things to consider, because I'm guessing most of the folks here, probably a lot of the folks here at least, recognize the, the, one, of the, one of the main sort of um, slogans of the Reformation, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, right? So, so a person is justified before God, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not based on works, or being sort of baptized into and plugged into the sacramental theology of the Roman Catholic Church, where you're slowly accruing merit over your lifetime, as it were. They use the language of grace, but it actually is, it, it's a works-based system. So I think probably most, most folks here are familiar with that. One of, the, one of the aspects that we're maybe not so much familiar with is this aspect of authority. So underlying the, the debate during the 16th century surrounding justification, actually underneath that debate was a question of authority. 
And the question was, what is the final authority for the life of the church, for doctrine and so on? And the reformers said, it's scripture alone, sola scriptura. The Roman Catholic Church came back in the Council of Trent. Um, So the Council of Trent was a counter-reformation council called a few decades after the beginning of the Reformation. And it was declared at that time that scripture and tradition hold the same level of authority. So when the Council of Trent made that declaration sometime in the 1540s, they were basically codifying what the Roman Catholic Church had essentially believed. It was more implicit for uh, multiple centuries at that time. What happened with, during the Reformation then in the Counter-Reformation of the Council of Trent is as soon as you elevate the tradition of the church to having the same authority as the scriptures, well, what happens is, is the, the tradition of the church actually trumps the authority of scriptures. That's what happens. As soon as you try to elevate the two on the same level, authority of scriptures goes down, tradition of the church goes up. And that's really what you saw. Um, one last thought, and I'm just going to try and touch on this really quickly because it's a very important point as well. And that's the question of sola scriptura. Does sola scriptura mean that church history and the teaching of the church doesn't matter then? So, and this has been a very real thing for me as a pastor, even very recently, because I've been interacting with a young man who would very much hold an Arian view of Jesus Christ, which is a fourth century heresy, which taught it denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So this young man, sadly, is a modern, he's basically a Jehovah's Witness, even though he's not part of the JW Church, and he's, he's committed to this fourth century heresy, and he doesn't understand that because he's not well-versed in church history. And the the response he brings is, oh, well, you're elevating tradition above Scripture. And that sounds like you're doing the exact same thing that the Roman Catholics do. So I'm just going to give a little bit of a rundown here. Um, For the past couple hundred years, the Enlightenment held the Biblicist position. It's a a post-Enlightenment way of thinking. The Biblicist position is... All I need is me, myself, and my Bible. I'm going to disregard church history. All I need is me, myself, and my Bible. And that's how you, how you come to these heretical conclusions. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, it's all a result of post-enlightenment thinking, which rejects church history. So the question is then, does Sola Scriptura reject church history? I'm just going to quote Martin Luther here really quick. Martin Luther, 1520 wrote a little pamphlet called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. In this treatise, Luther Luther said this, quote, What is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. So in other words, and I'm going to quote a historian now, Timothy George, Timothy George says, Sola Scriptura, quote, safeguards the authority of Scripture from that servile dependence upon the Church of Rome that in fact made it inferior to the Church. So again, that's just sort of a fancy way of saying that as soon as you elevate the tradition of the Church to the same status of the authority of the Scriptures, you trump the authority of the Scriptures. Now I'm just going to flesh this out with a quick example and then we're going to have to close here. 
just consider the doctrine of the purgatory, do, doctrine of purgatory of the Roman Catholic Church in regards to what I've just said. You cannot arrive at this doctrine based upon Scripture alone. Why? While doing faithful, meaningful exegesis of the biblical text, you will never get to the doctrine of purgatory. In other words, it's only by elevating the history of the church and the tradition of the church that you, the church will teach that, and the Roman Catholic Church still does to this day. Let's, let's compare that to the doctrine of the Trinity. As codified at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the doctrine of the Trinity, as compared to the doctrine of purgatory, is a result of, of faithful, meaningful exegesis of the biblical text. In other words, the doctrine of Trinity is coming from the scriptures. And I would suggest, and history has proven, that we reject church history in that sense, like rejecting Nicene Trinitarian theology. We reject it to our own peril. And history has also proved that when you reject these um, creeds and councils and so on, in, invariably, you will end up committing a heresy that's already been committed. So I know that's a lot to think about, a, lot, a bit of a mouthful there at the end, but it's something that I wanted to touch on. Um, got any questions about any of these, these questions? Please feel free to come chat with us. Were there any, any other thoughts, brothers? Okay, let, let me close in prayer, and, and we can get ready for the main service. Heavenly Father, there are many things that we have um, thought about and wrestled through even now in this last hour. And Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired, inerrant, infallible word, which is the final rule uh, for all of faith and life and doctrine. And uh, Father, thank you for this gathering here, this congregation here. And Father, we just pray that you would continue to build us up in love and prepare us uh, even now for the main service. Father, help us to ponder the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and uh, cause our hearts uh, to worship you, the living triune God. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.